0: Hello, welcome to the Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice addresses the measurement of driving pressure during pressure support ventilation using an end-inspiratory hold. Perez and colleagues used esophageal manometry to measure driving pressure and transpulmonary driving pressure during patient-triggered breaths in ARDS subjects with varying peep levels. They found an association between driving pressure and transpulmonary pressure, with a driving pressure greater than 15 centimeters of water as the best threshold for detecting transpulmonary driving pressure greater than 12. They suggested that driving pressure using an end-inspiratory hold might detect excessive transpulmonary driving pressure. Zhang and Cortez Puentes provide an accompanying editorial, noting that previous work has shown that transpulmonary driving pressure determined from the airway pressure is approximately 0.8 in patients with bilateral lung disease. They also point out that changes in abdominal and chest wall compliance may alter this relationship significantly. Finally, they state that these pressures cannot track regional ventilation and focal lung stress during the transition from controlled to patient-triggered approaches. They urge caution in relying on airway pressure measurements in these circumstances. It's important to be able to tell if the patient's effort is too much or too little, and in those cases it can um, result in problems trying to detect transpulmonary pressure from just airway pressure alone. Hen and others report their findings from an online survey at two college campuses regarding the use of electronic nicotine delivery systems, or ENDS, during the COVID-19 pandemic. One university was in the United States and the other in Germany. Approximately a third of respondents were using ENDS and most reported increased use during the pandemic. Stress relief and addiction were the most common reasons for increasing ENDS use. They suggest that ENDS use results in nicotine addiction and that mental health counseling could help reduce ENDS use. Linda Goodfellow opines that vaping, while heralded as a potential method to reduce cigarette use, is often used in addition to traditional smoking she notes that in concert with mental health professionals respiratory therapists can play an important role in counseling students to reduce or eliminate their ends addiction nielsen et al described the use of automated secretion removal technology in a small group of mechanically ventilated subjects This automated cough procedure rapidly deflates the endotracheal tube cuff during inspiration and rapidly inflates the cuff at the beginning of inspiration. They found that the cough procedure was effective in secretion removal in 90% of subjects, and and the procedure was well tolerated. This essentially is, think of it as a maximal insufflation, exufflation maneuver using the ventilator alone to move secretions not only from in the trachea and bronchi, but from around the cuff. Jay Lee provides commentary reviewing several methods described in the literature to remove secretions in intubated patients without endotracheal tube suctioning. She explains that shallow endotracheal tube suctioning, so just to the end of the endotracheal tube, is well tolerated, but while these cough maneuvers show promise, further human studies are needed. Chang and others performed a bench study of fugitive aerosols during aerosol therapy using different mask designs. They studied an aerosol mask, a modified non-rebreathing mask, one with no vent holes, and an aerosol mask with vent holes covered by viral filters on either side. They found that the filtered mask reduced fugitive aerosol and during treatment, RTs should wear appropriate personal protective equipment and avoid standing parallel to the patient's head. Feldman's and colleagues performed a retrospective study of mechanically ventilated pediatric subjects who had a measurement of dead space to tidal volume ratio prior to extubation. They divided subjects into two groups, those with a VDVT less than 0.3 and those with a VDVT greater than 0.3. They recorded the level of post-extubation respiratory support at 1, 2, 3, 7, and 14 days. In a group of 54 subjects, they found that subjects with a VDVT greater than 0.3 had more days of post-extubation respiratory support and longer ICU stays. Davis and others studied the impact of nocturnal high-flow nasal cannula on the sinonasal symptoms of subjects with cystic fibrosis during hospitalization for an exacerbation. Subjects received high-flow nasal cannula at 20 liters a minute or five-liter minutes of low-flow oxygen using a cold bubble humidifier. There were no differences in sleep disturbances between the groups, but sinonasal symptoms were only improved in subjects receiving high-flow nasal cannula. This was a very small study and there's a it's difficult to take a lot of conclusions but it makes sense that warm humid gas going into the nose at night would help improve those kind of symptoms cushion et al studied a small group of subjects with copd exacerbations comparing bronchodilators delivered by a jet nebulizer to a therapy using a vibrating mesh nebulizer Spirometry, body plethysmography, and impulse oscillometry were, were performed, and Borg breathlessness scores recorded pre-bronchodilator and one hour post-bronchodilator. Both groups showed similar changes in lung volumes and cap- capacities. The Borg scale was reduced greater in the mesh nebulizer group. A lot of these studies that we see show an advantage of a mesh nebulizer in deposition. One of the things we don't always see is what the differences in costs are, and that can be important. Patrick and others conducted a prospective cohort analysis of pediatric and young adult subjects followed in a clinic for asthma on inhaled corticosteroid medications found to have poor inhaled corticosteroid refill persistence. This cohort received a follow-up telephone outreach call five to eight weeks after the clinic visit. The primary outcome measure was refill persistence with regard to inhaled corticosteroid therapy. They reported that telephone outreach after outpatient clinic visits for asthma, had short-term benefits in inhaled corticosteroid refills. So patients forget to refill. They're not having a current problem. They don't worry about it. Then, you know, medication adherence has been a problem um, in all patients for all kinds of diseases, and asthma is certainly one of them. Klein et al. studied the minimally important difference of the 20-meter, 6-minute walk test in subjects with COPD. They assessed lung function, activities of daily living, functional capacity, the 6-minute walk test distance, dyspnea, health status, quality of life, and limitations in activities of daily living. The primary outcome was the 20-meter 6-minute walk test distance. They found that the 6-minute walk test difference was responsive to pulmonary rehab, with an average improvement of 39 meters. That minimally important difference was 20 meters. Trottier and colleagues performed a randomized controlled crossover double-blind study on 10 healthy subjects with induced hypoxemia during spontaneous breathing with oxygen support, CPAP at five or non-invasive ventilation with a baseline pressure of three and an inspiratory pressure of seven. In random order, three dynamic hypoxic challenges of five minutes were provided, included breathing 8% oxygen, 11% oxygen, and 14% oxygen. For each condition, automated oxygen titration and manual oxygen titration were by experienced therapists with the aim to maintain the SpO2 at 94 plus or minus two were compared. Automated oxygen titrations maintained the SpO2 target in all three conditions and hyperoxia was less frequent. They concluded that automated control of oxygen flow has the ability to maintain SpO2 at a target more often than manual oxygen titration in this setting. Mari and co-workers provided a short report on the calibration method to record the pressure volume curve of a esophageal balloon. The method involves filling the balloon at a slow and continuous rate using an automatic process that doesn't require intervention during recording. Michaels and others author a short report consisting of a retrospective analysis to determine whether respiratory mechanics, oxygenation impairment, social demographics, and comorbid conditions among mechanically-ventilated subjects suffering from COVID-19 infection were associated with all-cause mortality. Finally, in this issue, we published four papers from our symposium, Research and Publication in Restory Care. Miller contributes a paper on how to write an abstract for presentation at a scientific meeting. Linda Goodfellow provides a paper on how to search the medical literature and write a review. Dean Hess adds a review on the conduct and reporting of observational studies. Denise Willis provides a paper on how to present your research findings at a scientific meeting. We hope that you have found these papers that we've been publishing over the last series of months um, to be helpful as you approach your own research career. We appreciate your attention to the podcast, your subscribing to the journal, and your support of the profession. Happy Restorate Care Week and hope to see you at the AERC in Nashville. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.